We've all been there, in the middle of a job, everything going smoothly, until boom, you're missing a part. United Refrigeration is your one-stop shop for all your refrigeration needs. Use your computer or smartphone to go to www.uri.com at any time of day or night to check stock on your favorite brands, such as Copeland, Sporlin, Carlisle Compressors, Danfoss, Emerson CPC Boards and Sensors, Carell, Hussman Parts, and Ketotherm. United Refrigeration Inc. is home to these brands and many more. Looking for information on refrigerant conversions or refrigerant banking? Quick access links on the homepage can get you to the information you need. All approved accounts are able to see live to the minute inventory and pricing. Product not in stock at your local branch? No problem. Use the nearby stock feature to find a local branch that does have what you need. Are you looking for a branch address, phone number, or after hours number? That's all available as well. Just click on the branch locator and search for your local branch. Have a model number and looking for a replacement part? www.uri.com forward slash ARP has a vast list of quick pick replacement parts. Just search for the model number of the equipment you're working on and click the replacement parts tab. If you don't have an account, click the register button and we'll have you online in no time. With more than 400 locations in North America, each United Refrigeration branch is fully stocked for immediate pickup. Our branch employees have in-depth technical knowledge so we can help you get what you need when you need it. Visit your local store or www.uri.com forward slash ARP today. United Refrigeration Inc. has all your solutions down cold. John, how can you always have the right TV for the right application without carrying hundreds of valves on your truck? You can carry the hundreds of valves on a trailer behind your truck. That's too funny. That would work, but how are you going to do that? Maybe there's an easier way. You can use Sporlin's interchangeable cartridge style Type-Q and Type-BQ uh, TEVs. Type-Q is a conventional design and Type-BQ is a balanced port TEV. Well, come on, I need easy. How easy is it? Uh, easy is one, two, three. And it serves thousands of unique applications. So what's the process? How do I put this together? First, you select the thermostatic element assembly. Then you select the body that you need. Then you select the right size cartridge for the application to get the proper capacity TEV for your application. And then I guess it should also be said you want to actually assemble those to a single valve. That'd probably be a good idea. Indeed. These easy to select and assemble valves mean you're always carrying the right valve for the right job then. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to sporland.com and find more information on the Type Q and BQ thermostatic expansion valves. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. All right, just so I don't screw this up right away. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. You're here with your host, Brett Wetzel, Kevin Compass, and Damon Reed. Damon hey, Reed. Hey, guys. Hey, everybody. Pro, pro Refrigerator. How you doing, buddy? Good. <laughs> So um, we, we have a guest on tonight. Um, Damon uh, specializes in like really cool fucking chillers, like just different stuff that they use. It, it's it's kind of crazy. So um, we're we're just gonna start talking and see see where this conversation goes. Um, real quick, just because this is just the norm. 
how's your week going, buddy? Oh, my week's going great. You know, it's the uh, I'm I'm in North Carolina. Uh, our, our, why? Well, our manufacturing plants here. We've got okay. a fifty thousand square foot facility uh, just north of Charlotte and south of Raleigh, right in between. But the beauty of the weather here right now is it's seventy two degrees, sunny, and the humidity hasn't kicked up just yet. So it's gorgeous right now. I've got uh, some guys back on the West Coast that work out of our uh, Auburn, Washington headquarters. Mm-hmm. And they're still talking about being up a little north of Seattle and dealing with snow right now. So I'll take uh, 75 and low humidity every day of the week. That's funny. I, I was just out in California uh, last week and like everyone was freaking out because they're like, there's going to be snow on the Hollywood sign. I'm like, really? And then our, 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 you know, uh, James Coleman, he's a, he's a startup guy out here and and he, uh, he lives out in the high desert and he, he took a picture, uh, took a video and was like, Oh my God, it's snowing in the fucking desert. That's insane. That's wild. That was really wild. Yeah. Yeah. Kev, how are you doing? You you said, you you said before you were dead inside, what happened? Uh, Well, I, I started out Monday morning with my, uh, van breaking down halfway on the, on the way to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, uh, driving back home Monday afternoon with the only being able to go like 50 on the highway. <laughs> Sweet. So what'd you do? Then I spent last night ripping the whole top of the motor apart in the van to change coil packs. Oh, that, that's called, that's called calling in sick the next day. That's what that's called. Well, it's called, uh, I live an hour and a half from the shop and to get a van dropped off would be a nightmare. So get stuck fixing it myself. Oh, and then and then what happened? You sent me a picture. What was that? I couldn't really tell what that picture was. Which picture? Uh, it looked like you were taking a picture of a key or something. Oh, then the key snapped off in the ignition. Is that <laughs> is that is that like it? Like was it so cold in, in Indiana where it, no, like, it it's, just? It's literally like I went to go turn the, the key after I fixed it, and uh, the transit key snapped off in the ignition. So currently, my van starts with a knife. Oh man. <laughs> Working in the hood every day, the key, the key's literally jammed in the ignition. That's literally how my Monday went. (laughs) And then this morning I was uh, switching over lighting contactors in a uh, 40 year old grocery store almost. And uh, went to go turn the two lighting contactors that haven't moved in probably 15 years. They, uh, they went, they didn't sound so well. Then half the case fans went off. So I just gave up at that point. (laughs) Wait, how does the lighting contactor pull in and then the fans shut off? What happened? Uh, they uh, evidently in the last 20 years of remodel upon remodel upon store change, change changeover, they they decided that uh, they're going to put fans in the lighting contactor panels. So, yeah, that was uh, my day. After I look out there and I'm like, hmm, half the lights are still on. Hmm, all the cases are getting warm. Okay, I give up. So today's only Tuesday. So how did Tuesday go? Was it fixing uh, lights? <laughs> uh, no, I gave up at that point because that's out of my scope. And then uh, today we were mounting VFDs in uh, impossible spots. <laughs> well, just use some Unistrut and get creative. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's what I did. I've been building Unistrut stands all day and uh, putting VFDs inside of blower cabinets because there's nowhere else to put them. <laughs> Fun times. Nice. Yeah. It's been, a, it's been a rough week already, so hopefully the rest of the week is uh, good. Oh, and I flooded an entire uh, three aisles of a Walmart like at 4 o'clock today. 
What? What the fuck? What happened? I went to go help an apprentice, and uh, we started de icing a case, and uh, all the floor drains started backing up from all three aisles. Ooh. Well, that wasn't like totally your fault. I mean, the floor drain, that's a, that's a plumbing issue. It that's was, nothing. Uh, it was bad. <laughs> I turned around and went, that's why, that's why Kevin's dead inside. So, Damon, what are we uh, what are we going to talk about tonight, man? So, you know, I think we're going to talk about some uh, chiller systems, uh, packaged yeah. uh, industrial process chiller systems. Um, I've got some stuff to talk about. We can kind of look at uh, some presentations. But one of the neat things we had was uh, a couple of years ago, our company uh, CEO, Jim Vandergeesen Jr., he brought uh, an initiative out that uh, we were going to design a transcritical CO2 chiller system, uh, all air-cooled. So, so is this is this for is this ninety bar or is this one hundred and forty bar? I'm designed for my high sides at one hundred and twenty bar and my low sides ninety bar. So I'm so a high standstill pressure. So you so, can basically shut that shit down and it won't it won't pop off. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I I mean we we built so I mean we we tackled it. Uh, you know we worked with some companies, uh, uh, some engine an engineering company out of South Africa uh, when we designed the system and did the initial layout. And then, you know, it was my job with my team to put all the pieces together and uh, and then make it work. Um, we fired our first system up, uh, put it in in Bakersfield, California on a dairy farm. Uh, so we're cooling raw milk. Um, the chiller systems, of course, it's it's all when I say it's all packaged. I mean, I've got all the pumps, the the reservoir. Uh, so so the refrigeration rack uh, and I'll explain why, you know, the kind of the details of it when I when I call it the rack side, uh, maybe a lot of people on this uh, call will understand already what I mean. But uh, um, what we're doing is we're cooling, you know, our evaporators cooling a 750 gallon uh, reservoir of propylene glycol, and we're holding that at 32, 30, 33 degree Fahrenheit set point, and then we're pumping that to a plate and frame heat exchanger inside the facility and then i've got a just a steady constant flow of raw milk coming in at 98 degrees fahrenheit and i'm taking it down to 36 degrees fahrenheit and storing it in bulk storage silos so if, if the chiller hiccups and things don't work that ain't good you it's 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 that one pass and the milk flow doesn't stop so hot milk is bad and uh and, and we've maintained the system that, like I say, that one's been going now for just a little over a year, uh, maybe a year and a half. And uh, it, it, the, the results have been stellar. We fired up a, another unit uh, since up in uh, Talkeetna, Alaska uh, at a uh, distillery. And then we also got a, our third unit in operation. It's at another uh, dairy farm down in Bakersfield. And I've got two more on the ground uh, ready to get commissioned on site. One's kind of a unique uh hybrid where we have some four one, one side of the system is 150 horsepower of 448 and then i've got my 100 horsepower rack um co2 chiller system on the other side of the unit so so are the are these units all hpx copper are they all stainless they're xhp so we're running the we're running the high pressure copper on the systems um all your all the valves most of the valves and and components on everything are, are 140 bar rated. And then on the all the coppers, it's XHP 130 on everything. 
And we got, you know, we went through that transition where it was the, the changeover from uh, where you had Waylon switching over with Mueller. And, and so you had K65 and then you had XHP 130. And, and uh, at the end of the day, it's all the copper iron is the material that we're using and the high pressure rated stuff too. So we met up, we don't, we met up with Damon over at AHR um, and we were probably shooting the shit for a while. It was funny. Cause like after we talked to you, uh, we talked to Wainard and he's like, yeah, I designed that system. Cause I was like, we were just talking about it. Cause they were like, it's so fucking cool. Like how this thing works. And yeah. Like, yep. Yep. That was me. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Wayne and we worked a lot with Wayne and when we fired up, Sean, uh, who's Wayne's partner, he came out and we spent a, well, he came out, I picked him up like up in Seattle and we were driving down South to California. So we spent time on the road and then, you know, we had a good, uh, two weeks on site with that first system operating it, uh, getting, getting everything charged up, working out, you know, just little controls, bugs and where, where things, where we needed things to operate to give us the performance that we were after. So it was a blast. Yeah, it was good times. I've become an expert at WhatsApp. So that's the the way to communicate overseas and not have to uh, pay a lot of fees on phone calls and such. Wait a minute. I, really? I call, I, I'll, call, I'll call Canadia all the time and I don't get any fees. Go overseas. If you hit like, uh, if, you hit, if you're talking with like Mexico, Guad yeah, South America, um, uh, uh, Europe, Asia, WhatsApp is a, is a really nice tool to use. Huh. Oh, that's uh, that's interesting. That's yeah, we, we tried to call uh, for that rack at the Walgreens, and I was like, "Whoa, no charges here." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was uh, just get a WhatsApp. My account. wife would have killed. <laughs> yeah, didn't you say it was over in, in Sweden? Did you did you ever see that manufacturer? That, that did he tell you the manufacturer? It's like, what the hell was it? Green mm -hmm. skill. Green, Green skill, skill or something like that? Yeah. yeah. It was some Swedish Swedish monstrosity. What yeah. was that that you were working on? It was uh it was a CO2 rack heat pump with okay. full heat recovery. So oh, nice. it was uh, it was doing the the cooling, the heating, and the refrigeration. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. It was it was just cut apart though. The refrigeration oh, really? was cut off. Oh yeah, it was just it basically all it was doing is heating the building at that point. What? Oh bummer, bummer. Yeah, so so like our chillers where we we tied in with our heat reclaim system, so we're heat. I'm heating all the facilities uh, hot water with the chiller system because I've got imagine um, so like with the heat pumps in a heat pump app application where we're like generating hot water for uh, I don't know an apartment complex or something, right? And maybe it's like an air source type scenario. They're they're looking to the air for that cooling load so they can get the heat, right? But the but the cooling, it was kind of a unique thing for me. It's like I'm I'm all focused on the cooling, and I keep a real steady uh, cooling load on the chiller system. It's just I've always got cooling load. So all of a sudden, for me, the heat was kind of a scenario where what do I do with all this heat um, and with CO2, what's really neat is, you know, you run the system transcritical and you run some, some higher discharge temperatures. So you can get really, really hot water with something like 404A or 448. Well, I'll get a little more with 448, but let's say 404, 
you know, I'd be looking at temperatures of like maybe 130 to 140. I could get tops out of a heat reclaim system with a recirculated loop. So I have a question about that then. So it was it was it engineered from the get? Like, okay, let's just say you had, you know, 5 million BTs that you knew of that you had to do cooling for, right? Yeah. Did, did they put in a specific system with, you know, essentially, you know, obviously it's going to be a little bit more than, than, than uh, 5 million, right? Because you have the, you have the latent heat and shit from the, from the gas cooler and the sensible heat that totally, you always have more total heat of rejection than you do, you know, actual fucking cooling load, right? That's right. That's right. So, so my question is, was it, were those heat reclaim tanks specifically engineered for that? Like, or, cause I'm, I'm confused. Cause like, there's no way you could just be like, Oh yeah. 5 million BTUs is going to be enough to heat that water. You know what I mean? Uh, was uh-huh. it, was it perfectly engineered for that? Or was it just like, they have like a backup just in case that can't make it up. Cause like you said, you have a constant load all the time. Yeah. But like what are the chances that you're going to have the exact amount of load that you need to heat the water and cool the freaking facility? That's, that's it's, where I'm kind of losing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so storage reservoirs, and that's where you learn more. So initially when we, when we did the, de- the design and development, it was, um, you know, what is our maximum heat recovery potential that we could get off of this piece of equipment? Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our refrigeration load in BTUs per hour was steady. I have a, I have a, a steady BTU per hour cooling load that this facility is going to be able to deliver. Cows are um, always milking. That's Cows right. Always milking. That's right. So I got steady BTUs per hour I'm working with. Now factoring in total heat of rejection, ambience, things like that. Now how you size up your your heat exchangers and things for the heat recovery side, you do have to get, you have to identify on the hot side, you got to say, okay, um, what am I going to design for? You know, and you got to pick a design point. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to be spot on every single time. You kind of got to pick a big window, right? Yeah, and you you got to do it by the amount of flow of water and how hot they actually need it. it. And, and Which fortunately it's all, it's all a sensible load because we don't want to turn that water into steam. Right. So I that's mean, right. It's, that's right. And you can with CO2 and you can, and the controls uh, on the system have, have boiling alarms. If the heat reclaim side starts to get too hot, uh-huh. And it starts pushing up close to, I think it's around 205. It starts backing off the heat reclaim system. You move, you're moving three-way valves. So we have a, we have a heat reclaim valve in the refrigerator. So we come off the discharge side, we come into a three-way valve and the three-way valve is saying, okay, I'm either going to, I'm either calling for heat recovery. So I'm going to push the discharge gas uh, through my heat recovery heat exchanger and then up to my gas cooler. Or I'm going to divert away from my heat recovery system, and I'm going to just push everything through my uh, through my gas cooler at that point. Gotcha. So are you using a modulating three-way valve and modulating it, or is it just Here, open? Yeah. It's zero to ten. Yep, zero to ten um, uh, actuator, and it and it does modulate, so I get the full range of it. Slow wow. acting. It's like so you uh, control there. Yeah. Yeah. So on the control side, we're using the Danfoss controls. So it's just a rack control. I think you guys were talking about switching stores and stuff over Kevin, I think to like the 800, the system manager. So I use the the 850A is what I'm using for my my interface. That's my system manager. And then I've got a 100 horsepower parallel compression uh, rack. Um, And then I'm using, uh, so I'm using the 781 to control my rack and that's controlling my heat recovery. That's controlling my, my gas cooler fans. That's controlling my flash gas bypass valve. 
uh, compressor VFDs. And then we're talking with a 750, which is the, so I've got a 781, 750 is controlling my evaporators. So the evaporators, I just bring on and off based on the uh, reservoir temperature. The reservoir temperature gets above set point. I go ahead, I bring on my 750. My evaporators start controlling. My EEVs start opening up. Suction pressure comes up. So my medium temp suction temperature comes up. And then my compressor fires up and it tries to run. You know, and uh, you guys are probably familiar where you'll run like neutral zone, plus zone or minus zone to bring on your compressors. So at that point, it just kind of everything just happens like it's like magic. So everything just turns at that point, just turns into basically a normal parallel parallel rack. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yep. Yep. 750s. I, I, I'm just getting into Dan Foss at the point where like I'm getting heavy into it. So are you guys using case controllers for uh, the 750 is a case controller, it's correct? A, exactly. Yep. It's a case controller. So case controllers is what's running my evaporator. Yep. Okay, so the chiller is going to be your process variable. The 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 the, flu, the fluid temperature is going to be what it's going off. Is it fluid temperature or is it going off sump temp? So I'm I'm going off a of fluid temperature. So fluid temperature inside the reservoir. Um, we run so my 750. I program we program the 750 so it takes a signal from a pump. So if if you what you do is you add like in the programming side you add a calculation variable. And with the calculation variable for like you assign it to whatever IO you're working with, wherever your address, we just run like a current sensor. And then I say, okay, if, if, uh, uh, let's say for example, reservoir temperature gets above, let's say I want to hold 33, I could set it and say, hold right at 33 and shut off right at 33. And then it'll run PID calculations, you know, to give me a plus or negative, uh, output, but then it'll start the the internal pump and then as soon as that pump starts you measure that current we're just using a, a a current transformer to send another signal to an input to the 750 that says okay i'm seeing input voltage here go ahead and start running my um eevs and i'll run i run two dedicated evaporators so i got two questions now i'm assuming you probably float uh, float the uh, float the suction to you know base basically main uh, maintain you know if you don't need that full pull down and it's still maintaining glycol temperature or you know for that you still you float that up yes no uh, no no it's I constant the, all the time constant set point constant set point so okay. I set my I set my suction temp at let's say um, if I'm looking for 33 let's say I'm running at 23 maybe I'm giving myself a 10 degree delta there so okay. I just say hey, uh, evapor you know, uh, uh, suction group, I want you to maintain a 23 degree evaporator all the time. Okay. And then the other question I had, which I think it's gone. <laughs> I think it's well, gone. Yeah. Well, now you run your EVs on, I just run my EVs as injection. Oh, oh pumps, pumps, pumps. So I have a question. So like, you know, like us dealing with refrigeration, like, you know, we deal with, because our, our loads aren't constant, we have circuit setters on our heat exchangers to maintain a certain flow. The fact uh -huh. that I'm assuming your chiller is only going to one heat exchanger, your pipes are basically designed for your set amount of flow. Would that be a correct statement? Correct. And then you're still okay. trying to you're still trying to maintain a, a you know a, a TD across the or I'm sorry a, 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 a TP yeah delta P across for your VFD and that's what's sending back the signal. So like. 
Like if it's just running, if the chillers are perfectly sized and the piping is circular perfectly sized, usually it's like a 0.5 or 0.2 uh, differential across that heat exchanger or something like that. Well, well here's here's kind of I know where I, I think I know where you're going. So a lot of times when we're talking chillers in the world, we're talking single pump systems. So I'm running one pump that's feeding evaporators, mm -hmm. and then it's coming back and it's feeding. Uh, let's say I'm doing glycol to air heat exchangers or something. I'm gonna I'm gonna feed my process loop, and I'm gonna feed the refrigeration or the DX evaporators uh -huh. with the same pump that's feeding my process loop. So you're when, not just doing one heat exchanger; you're doing multiple. Well, I'll do two evaporate. So I on my refrigeration circuit, I've got my two brace plate. I, I run brace plate heat exchanger evaporators. Mm -hmm. I have one pump in the piping that's all sized to give me the exact flow that I'm designed for and pressure drop on that evaporator. That's my internal circulation loop. Then okay. I have a separate dedicated pump for the customer's process loop. So in this case, the customer's using the plate and frame heat exchanger. I've got that pump set aside, dedicated just for their process side. So yeah, so that makes more sense because it's all, it's all internal. Like you guys are designing for just that heat exchanger in that load with that pump. So you get a you better now. Do you guys run primary, secondary? Like you got a backup? I do have a backup, but I don't like lead lag. So I give them I give the customer a manual control and I'll explain why. So before we did it one time, we had like auto switch over and lead lag control on the backup. Mm -hmm. And what what you'd find is um it depends on the application. I mean, if we if you're dealing more with you know industrial refrigeration contractors, you know they're going to be a little more on top of stuff. Never. On, you know, yeah, yeah. When I'm working on other applications, you know, a lot of times what could happen is the system will automatically switch over to backup. Let's mm -hmm. say the primary has a failure. Mm -hmm. Nobody pays attention to it. And then they don't pay it because there's their product still cold. The system's still working. And then they come out and they go, oh, no, my backup just failed. Because whatever took out the primary pump didn't get corrected. So now it took out the second one. And now they come out to it. Now the system's down. Now it's an emergency. And your end user will, will have the comment of like, I paid for a backup pump. How come I got, how come I'm dealing with this emergency when I got a backup pump? So by going to a manual switchover to go to the backup pump, that gives us that physical check. Like somebody has to go out and switch a switch to run on backup then they have to address what's going on with the primary. You get a That's really good. loud side, uh, siren, really loud siren. Yeah, lights. We've lights, been, you know, lights. Stuff can be ignored. Or taped over. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. taped over. I, uh, I replaced a lot of taped over door alarms yesterday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bakery woman was quite pissed at me. <laughs> I can imagine so. <laughs> she's she's the one that broke your fucking truck you know that right probably <laughs> she was uh look she's looking very rough so uh she may have broken my truck that's <laughs> awful <laughs> grandma's looking rough she's got some city miles she sounds like she's four cartons of newports in. i just need one more nickel on this nickel slot and i'm gonna do it <laughs> this will be the one the one pull <laughs> so back 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 to the chiller because i mean yeah. you know because like uh like i said i that's i, I you know fortunately enough I, i've been able to i done you know process process cooling and and you know rack refrigeration type chiller stuff and that's like one of the biggest 
changes because our loads change so frequently cases maintain temperature so the piping is designed for roughly what it should be for like the mass amount of gpm but we still need to make sure we have G, uh, the proper amount of G, uh, GPM going across those heat exchangers because yeah. as anyone knows, if your approach is off, you're not going to pick up or you're not going to reject the proper amount of heat and your heat exchangers aren't going to work right. worth a shit. Or you could so, take too much, right? You could take way too much. The next question, your guys' uh, from looking at your guys' chiller, it looks like it's an open loop. Uh, yeah, yeah, correct. Not a pressurized system. We're vented to atmosphere with our reservoir. Yep what what's what's the benefit of that just so you basically have a little bit of a stowage yeah well being an open system versus a pressurized system i mean i can't uh so with an open system uh you don't have to deal with like uh on your glycol circuit everything like that can that can build pressure on the on the glycol side has the ability it's just going to vent to atmosphere so the reservoir itself has vents they're sealed you know so you're not getting debris and stuff inside but any built up pressure in the system is going to vent to atmosphere. So, um, you know, I, I can't, I'm not really big on, on like HVAC hydronics and stuff like that. So I can't, can't really talk a lot about, you know, what, a uh, advantages of a pressurized loop would be versus a non-pressurized. I just know that our, our systems are, when I see them installed, the piping loops are pretty simple, uh, compared to some of the stuff where, you know, I go into some pressurized loop systems and there's a lot of tanks and a lot of actuation, a lot of pressure bypass and things like that, that I just, we don't need to, I, I, I usually don't see that on an open loop system. Oh yeah. An open loop system is a lot easier. I mean, just in general, it seems like mm-hmm. instead of, you know, having to deal with a little bit of pressure loss or air getting bound up in there. That's about, that's about the only headaches you kind of run into on that from a fluid flow standpoint. So how many pounds of uh, CO2 are you guys, uh, are you guys averaging in these uh, chillers? Uh, Say that, come again. I'm sorry. How many pounds of uh, CO2 are you guys averaging in these uh, chillers? We're holding around 450 pounds on, on a, for an operating charge. That's actually a lot. Yeah. That's actually about what an Aldi runs a little bit more. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But yeah. how many how many BTUs are you doing on the on these chillers typically? I'm doing close to around seven hundred thousand BTUs per hour. So he's like he's like a two, two you know two racks on a on a super target. Yeah, Usually they're like 350, 400, 400, BTUs per rack. Does that? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, comp- uh, compressors. What do you, what do you, what do you put in there? Well, we're running on our compressors. We're running uh, two fifty horsepower bits or compressors. So I got a hundred horsepower a compressor on the system. Did you check out uh, Copeland's new centrifugal CO two compressor they got? I have not. I have not. I think you need to check that out. It looks pretty nitty. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Most definitely, man. Most definitely. So, do you have any uh, pictures or anything that you could you could share with yeah, us so we can, yeah. we can scope this out? Guys, uh, why don't I start? Let me just show you a. Uh, I'll do a share screen and um, bear with me here. So, I'll share um, a PowerPoint of a presentation we had put together um, that had shown. 
the system that we fired up up in Talkeetna, Alaska. And to yeah, what's, what's up with having a distillery in Alaska? So uh, Denali Brewing has got a brewery there, and then they got a uh, they're doing a bunch of uh, um, it's canned cocktails. So they're using their distillery to make canned cocktails, and a lot of stuff goes in for the uh, uh, the Seattle Kraken to that arena. Uh-huh. Uh, so they provide all those uh, all those drinks for those guys. And so we're we're this CO two chiller system's dedicated to that uh, to that uh, that production line for them. Just keeping Seattle drunk. That's good. Bring it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is, are you guys able to see this? Is this, is this Sharon? Okay. Uh, it's coming up. It's doing okay. something. Um, click over on the Dan Foss tab. If that's the one you're trying to share. No, it's oh, it's not doing it. Why is it not doing uh, 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 oh, Weird. Okay, it should be running the PowerPoint. Boy, it's not liking that, guys. Oh, that's freaky. I'll stop sharing that. Like it's my computer doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Here's right one more time. Hit present. Here it comes. And then you got it. Yep. See if I do this window, if that works better. There we go. All right. Uh-huh. Trying to see the, get the most maximum maximum. How's there this? you go. That's, That's perfect. There we go. There we go. Here, I'll get rid of our fat faces. So this gives us the uh, uh, this is the overview of the system. So parallel fifty horse. This is this package is represents the exterior. This is this is the whole circuit. Uh, Seven hundred and fifty gallon reservoir that sits back here in this area. Uh-huh. Onboard heat recovery, we're generating up to 180 degree water. Uh, that's coming in at 70, coming out at 180. Damn, Jesus, yeah. quite the pickup. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. And we went uh, EC rated fan motors, so uh, you know we're basically variable speed drives on our on our fan motors. Um, we're running uh, process pumps. Everything's got variable speed drives, standby backup pumps, all stainless steel. Uh, the interface is panel touchscreen. That's the 850. Uh, and then we've got our cold chain verification, which is a online uh, AWS. Uh, so it's like a cloud-based industrial IoT monitor system. Does, uh, does that mean that this system runs subcritical, like probably most of the time? Well, it depends. Um, so I can be subcritical, but if I'm looking for heat recovery, then I'm going to force the system to run transcritical at that point. Okay. Yeah, way more heat out of it that way. That's right. So if I go into, if I'm, and, and maybe I'll show you, um, and, and I'll share this, Let's see if I can get this. So is this Danfoss view coming up right now? No, it's being lame. Okay. Let me show you guys this. This is a system that's running live. It's kind of neat. I'll blame it on Kevin's internet. Bringing it. I kicked the kids off. <laughs> Stop maybe playing I, Fortnite. Maybe I got to go blast mine. They're they're playing the Oculus now. The you, know, you guys get into that. One's on the Oculus. One's on the uh, one's on the Xbox. I, I have to shut the router off when I go to do this. <laughs> I can't do that. Mine'll freak out. 
<laughs> my 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 twelve uh, year olds figured out how to get in the router though, which is a problem. Oh, that is a problem. <laughs> so this is so right at the moment. Are you guys? Is it showing the? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So yep. this system nine. Let's see. Back uh, in California right now, it's six p.m. So they might have already cycled off with their operating load. Uh -huh. But this gives just a, an overview of the system, you know, where kind of a simple look. Um, and then I've got, uh, so this is my rack control on my compressors, gas cooler, high pressure valve, flash tank, flash gas valve. Uh, and I can see my suction group and get a peek at my evaporators. So are you guys using like CCMT valves for uh, yes. EVs too? Yep, sure am. Yep. So we're CCMTs and then... Uh, the high pressure valve is a CCM valve. Okay. Well, it's uh. Yeah, she's this one's sitting idle right at the moment. She off. Tell oh, them to start. Oh, oh. Tell them to start pumping out some pumping out some milk. Come on. I've yeah. never seen anybody use the uh, the uh, graphics in Danfoss. Um, say that again, Kevin. I've never actually seen the graphics get used in the uh, 850. Oh, it's awesome man it's awesome and setting it up like so you could go in through that and you can grab like any of your control points that are built into the system when you're running it and like one thing like you don't see on here is you don't see um suction superheat right you could do the calculation manually but you know as a technician i want to walk up to that 850 go to my site views and it, and it would just be nice to have a really quick snapshot and where you can see all this visually. And so, you know, I think on one of the updates I did on one of them, I put the suction superheat right here between the two compressors, just so that if someone's doing some service work and we're having to do some support remotely, we can we can provide that for them. No, I think the graphics are like with, with CO2, the, the, the graphics are like 100% you know necessary because especially with like guys trying to troubleshoot it like having the graphic there with like all the pressures and temperatures it makes life so much easier and arrows oh, yeah. with the, which way it goes i mean yeah just, just following a technician standpoint or an apprentice trying to walk them through it like it is like a, a huge time saver oh yeah yeah well i've seen stuff where like say for example like coming out here this is like 300 psi up here on my gas cooler high pressure valves at zero Let's say I'm at 300 PSI in my flash tank, flash gas valves at 0%, right? And then maybe my suction groups are sitting all idle. We saw that when we got into some really extreme, we were like negative 40, negative 35 ambience up in Alaska, um, where the system just sits idle, you know? So there, there's some things that we, uh, that we learned through this winter um, to um, overcome that. She needs to she needs yeah she needs a bump for a minute on a compressor and uh then she'll take off <laughs> yeah yeah there's some yeah and you can you can do some unique things with some new valves and that's stuff that we're still uh you know kind of kind of working that magic um and you know but at the end of the day it's just like what you said being able to see it on the you know a graphical representation was i mean it was huge to be able to look at it and say okay well this isn't making sense. Like right now I run my flash tank at 500 PSI or 550 is my set point. Mm -hmm. So I expect to see my flash gas valve opening just a little bit. And as this is running up, of course, nothing's moving. Right. So mm -hmm. my pressure valves at zero. So this pressure really is just going to kind of set idle 
and I've got 400 PSI over here on my suction group. And I think it's like, I want to say it's like 450 PSI is where it'll cut in. Even So even if this pressure does come up and we don't have any cooling demand, let's say our evaporators are at 0% on our EVs, all it's doing is just doing a quick pump down cycle. You know, so it so, might come on. In a place like Alaska, like, I mean, at one point, like, when do you just bypass the rack, hook up a dry cooler to whatever process shit you're trying to cool, and yeah. just run a basic dry cooler for Absolutely. refrigeration? Absolutely. And we built the, some of the systems that we built for them that were on the synthetic side. We yeah. did that. You know, it was... Get uh, the hell out. You just run a dry cooler on your return line. and But, you know, then you got to... That fluid that's coming back, you know, you got to... You got to you got to watch if the flow shuts off. How does that drain back into the reservoir? And so it's it's just nothing's ever as easy as it sounds. You know, it's kind of what you learn. Well, yeah, because I mean, you're obviously not running glycol down to a minus forty freeze point. So I mean, because that would that would cost there that would take a lot of horsepower on pumps and everything else. So I mean, you could still technically freeze in the dry cooler. That's right. That's right. And I've seen that. I've seen that like up in Maine where a dry cooler, uh, uh, you know, the flow stops and they, you know, maybe they're freeze protected to like negative 20 on their glycol and they deal with negative 30 ambient and they come into some, some busted pipes. We had that at a store up here at HE store that the whole store uses a, uh, a bunch of uh, recalled towers for glycol loop and everything's water cool. Well, they had a power outage and it was minus 20 for like two days and uh, all the towers froze. Oh, 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 man, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be fun. Tarp, tarping it, and uh, we were up there with tarps and uh, turbo heaters for like six hours to try to get one to thaw. And then all of a sudden, it started raining glycol. Uh, oh uh, shit! Did like the whole like where all the fill material is and everything? Did that all freeze up, or was it like the basin that froze? Or solid? It was the it was the, the the whole tower was just a bricked up mess. Ugh. Ugh. It, looked, it looked like Elsa fucked that thing up. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, just, just glycol. And then all of a sudden, it was like, oh, we got flow. All of a sudden, you just hear the apprentice go, "It, it's, it's coming out the drain." I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's just pure red. It's like, oh well, that tower shot. Oh no, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. We did. Uh, we our our learning lesson with the with the cold ambience was uh, and and I mean that's a lot of credit to Danfoss for having the controls are basically already pre configured but um, in the low ambience you know you just bypass your uh, your gas cooler just don't run any gas up to your gas cooler and you control everything See, based off your gas outlet temperature. Hey guys, today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries serviceable oil floats. Many oil separators contain an oil float to effectively meter separated oil back to the compressors. Westermeyer Industries has taken this concept and perfected it. With their new line of serviceable oil floats, these floats feature an improved design with fewer components, allowing for greater manufacturer consistency and up to 20% increased oil flow versus their legacy models. These floats also feature an integrated magnet to shield the oil path from debris and have been field proven in supermarket applications. Westmire Industries offer replacement oil floats not only for their own separators, but also cross compatible models 
for our competitor oil separators as well. You can find out more about the Westermeyer Industry serviceable oil floats by visiting westermeyerind.com backslash floats. Once again, that's westermeyerind.com slash float. Let's get on with the episode. New that I think we're gonna start seeing a lot is uh because we're having a lot of load issues at uh like smaller stores like Aldi's and like uh, small stores like that. I mean okay. when they had nighttime when they see all the nightshades on the cases, they have no load. So okay. that okay. Gas, that gas cooler just eats up all the all the CO2 and it's just when the fan comes on, it's just very poor load control because the way they're doing the fan staging, you know, like yeah. stands four fans on at once and that drop like temp instantly just drops yeah. and it just hunts. Yeah. Yeah, and then it causes like pressure everything just kind of set state stagnant. That's one thing I know with CO two. You know, is, is you start looking paying paying closer attention to those pressure differentials. You know, because you'll see everything just go flat at one pressure. It may be four hundred psi, but it's four hundred psi everywhere. So you're like, okay, well, do, doesn't matter if I open valves manually. It's four hundred psi on this side of the valve. It's four hundred psi on this side of the valve. Nothing going move. anywhere. It ain't going nowhere. Yeah, yeah. So one thing yeah. we didn't talk we, about. We've had a couple uh, of stories. Sorry. Go ahead. So we, we've had a couple of stories where they went down where it was like my, it was real cold that uh, they wouldn't start back up until you bumped them. So you bumped a held a compressor contactor in for like, you know, a minute, let it let it build up some pressure before yeah. it would actually just move it again. I mean, it, just, it just wants to sit on the roof. Like, I mean, like a normal refrigerant would, but like yeah. it seems to be a little bit worse. Yep. Yep. So what I was going to say, one, one thing we didn't talk about uh, first off the bat, I, man, I, like I know pro refrigeration does a lot of specialty stuff. I want, I want to hear about some of the other stuff that you guys do oh, and where, where you guys are located and how so, far you all range. Yeah. So, so the company was started uh, about a uh, little over 30 years. I, I want to say 33 years ago, it was started by uh, Jim Vandergeesen Jr. Jim Vandergeesen Sr. Um, they started, um, building a chiller system to work for the dairy industry uh, on farm raw milk cooling. Um, they, and they came from a background of uh, um, family history in the dairy dairy industry, but then they were also both worked in the uh, putting in food processing plants. So, um, you know, kind of took uh, uh, refrigeration background and, and, and fabric fabrication and system uh, design background and developed a chiller system Um over the years, we, uh, we do a lot in the uh, micro uh, brewing uh, world. We do a lot in wineries, distilleries, bakeries, uh, pretty much anywhere you're going to encounter food processing. Uh, you're usually going to find a glycol chiller system uh, somewhere in that facility. Um, uh, about five years ago, we started to, we developed a system that operates at negative 45 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, kind of geared towards the uh, uh, extraction uh, oil extraction markets. Um, and that's our M45 series. So we build, we kind of have our standard product range, um, which hits a sweet spot anywhere from negative or uh, plus five Fahrenheit to plus 45 degrees Fahrenheit for an operating set point. And th those are, those are uh, built from three quarter horsepower all the way up to 260 horsepower on a single skid. And then, uh, yeah, then we get into wow. our, m5 series package which runs from plus five to negative 20 that's using a single stage 
um, refrigeration compressor. And then we go into our M45 series, which is where we're using a compound compressor system. And then we also have built some, uh, we have a custom manufacturing um, uh, line where we build some uh, custom rack systems for uh, uh, custom customers. So because of the PT really, charts, so build, oh, sorry. So you guys, you guys build racks too, like normal, normal refrigeration racks? Yeah, but, really? but only, only like custom industrial type applications. So not, not supermarket or C-store type applications. Um, uh, meat processing plants, smoke houses, uh, some of those types of types of applications. So the, the, the negative 50 stuff you were talking about, you know, obviously it's fairly easy to do that with CO2 is just dropping the suction pressure. Is that what you're doing or are you using like a regular HFC or HFO for that? that I'm using just a regular, I'm using 404A on that. Really? Running, yep. Minus 58 degree evaporator temperature on that. Wow. See, but with CO2 though, Brett, you'd be getting real close to the, uh, to it breaking up from, uh, from uh, dry ice yeah yeah you don't want to yeah yeah you don't want to go down below you know 100 psi in your system if you start tickling that on co2 you'll start uh you'll start hitting those uh critical points it's also you know with uh uh and something to consider what what pros doing with the co2 package is we're we only build one model right now and that's the 100 horsepower so the the m45 series the low temperature systems those are hitting a range of uh, uh, operating capacities. Uh, I've got a, a 20, uh, 15 horsepower, 20 horsepower, and a 25 horsepower um, size. And so they're compact, um, you know, four foot by eight foot. Everything's packed into a real small space, small area. And then heat so, transfer fluid is different. Yeah. What 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 heat transfer are you doing with with that negative uh, forty five? Is it is it cooling a fluid or is it air cooling air? It's cooling a fluid, and we're using a dynaline HC fifty, which is a potassium formate. Um, your glycol when you start when you start trying to run propylene glycol, you start getting down below negative uh, thirty five degrees. Um, your your glycol just. When things get cold like that, you kind of run into uh, density of the fluid uh, really has a big impact. So um, and, and viscosities change a lot um, along with that. So propylene glycol just kind of sits stagnant in your reservoir. Your pump's pumping, but it ain't moving. You, know, you would almost have to go to like a P positive displacement style type pump as opposed to a centrifugal pump to get that stuff moving. So it makes sense to go with a, a different heat transfer fluid, which is a dynaline HC50, which has a better viscosity at a lower temperature range. Have you guys done any ice rinks yet? We have not done any ice rinks. No, nope. we've been approached a few times. We've looked at the applications. Uh, it's a little bit outside the wheelhouse on stuff. And, you know, we got our hands full with everything that's in front of us right now. Yeah, I would love to see one of those chiller, those CO2 chillers on an ice rink. That that thing would probably kick ass. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a trip. Yeah, well, yeah. Was... You could use the you could use the heat for the heat recovery for the for the rink, as far as on the air handlers to keep a constant load on the air conditioner so it doesn't get all humid and dumb in the place. Yeah, I mean any anywhere there's opportunity for for utilizing hot water with a CO2 system, um, with our with our heat recovery. I mean it's just like. Uh, it's just it's just you're just helping helping out 
the the refrigeration circuit and taking advantage of all that waste heat that you could generate. Well, yeah, I mean, and you're at the same time you're you're lessening your transcritical time too. I mean, with you're you're forcing it into transcritical, but you're also you know lessening that when it when it doesn't need to be transcritical by using that heat reclaim because it's you know it's picking up that extra heat and desuperheating it. So I mean that that's a huge. You could also use heat reclaim for, you know, um, mitigating your uh, your transcritical time. But you guys are probably running transcritical most of the time, correct? That's correct. We actually. So when I switch over and I go to and and so uh, if you if you look at on the on the hot water system, you have uh, you know swing tanks or buffer reservoir tanks, right? And you where you monitor the temperature to control your heat reclaim is you monitor those tanks. And if that tank temperature gets above, gets below set point and your refrigeration's running, well then you wanna be in heat reclaim mode. And so if everything downstream is sized correctly, um, then technically if you get perfect, your, your load on your refrigeration is running heat, you're recovering all the heat you're wasting. So now your gas coolers are hardly doing anything. Um, and, so, you know, they're just maybe sucking a little bit of the edge off of that uh, temperature just to get your gas outlet temperature down. Um, but when we go into that heat reclaim mode, we do we, we shift the heat reclaim valve to run heat recovery. But then we also run our gas cooler. We run our high pressure valve to a higher set point. And so we'll say, hey, we want to run to 1200. I may want to run to 1350 um, for my discharge pressure. So can your guys' heat reclaim coils can can under under normal conditions, can they take enough heat out of there to actually condense the CO2 and bypass the the gas cooler in the middle of summer? Or is it just is it usually now, not enough? In the in the middle of summer, because I'm not running adiabatic on my gas cooler. It's just straight air. So by doing that, it's less maintenance that we have to contend with on stuff. So now that's where heat reclaim really becomes important. You have to have that heat reclaim to be able to be 110, 115 degree ambient and still keep your keep your gas cooler from getting out of control. Because then, you know, flash tank goes up, everything gets weird. High pressure valve starts pinching off, VFDs start backing off. And it's basically the system saying, hey, I'm getting too high a pressure. But if your heat reclaims running like it's supposed to, you're maintaining that. I mean, yeah, he reclaims like one of the left out, uh, left out, uh, you know, uh, you could say unsung hero, unsung hero. With our customer, our first system that's in uh, down there, we, we, you know, measured and quantified what we're doing. So we keep uh, the hot water uh, heaters in parallel with the swing tanks, but the swing tanks are getting cooled or getting heated, excuse me by the heat recovery system. So we were able to take one of their heat heater systems and just shut it off completely. And uh, we, we measured the amount of gas savings that was on propane. And for that customer, it was 41 gallons of propane per day. Holy shit. Saved. Wow. Um, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So you got the, you got the propane savings by shutting off the system, but then you've also got, you know, what you put into carbon with the exhaust of the propane right? For burning that propane. What does that cost? Right. Um, so 
there's other clients that we work with and, and run some calculations for right now. I've got some people I talk to that are, uh, you know, 41 gallons an hour potential savings for some big, big, big. Wow. So how much energy savings? Cause like, I'm, I'm thinking though that this, with all the energy that you're saving, like one chiller is basically a zero, the zero net sum game. Right. I mean, yeah. cause you're cooling yeah. for, you're cooling for free. You're using that total heat rejection. You're killing the amount of energy that you're doing on your, on your uh, on your gas cooler because you're not fucking using it most of the time, um, and then you know the amount of propane that they're not burning because of that, and you plus you know with that savings and then the energy that they're going to save because of the uh, like you said the emissions, you know they probably get green credits for that as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those things are all being. I mean, and they, it's a it's a uh, before you know when it was when it, it, looking at a chiller system it was just hey I, this is my load this this is what i need for a chiller how much hot water can i get well i'll take whatever i can get right so long as i'm not condensing um now the the games are different now it's a it's a more holistic approach like okay i'm a, I'm a refrigeration chiller guy and now all of a sudden i'm talking to people about hot water swing tanks i mean two years ago i wasn't even thinking about that um now all of a sudden it's a it's just a whole new dynamic um, when you're looking I mean, at yeah because you guys are generating that much hot water it's insane like i like just working with that that co2 rack the other day that was heating the store like and it had no load on it like i couldn't believe how hot it got the it got the hot water loop for the the boiler hot water loop in like yeah. an hour and a half of running we were up to like 160 degrees with no load on it with with load on it, it probably would have been hitting 200 oh yeah oh yeah yeah well and that's the other thing with co2 right as a mechanic like now where stuff's hot, like you can remember, like, like you could probably walk up to a, a 404A system. You can put your hand on a dish. Yeah. You know, I don't advise it. You know, it's probably 140 to 160 degrees, but it's not like, it's not like I, 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 the word for, you know, it's not like dangerously hot. Right. But now you get around the CO2 system and as you're getting close to some of these things, like you're, you know, maybe you're leaning in, looking at something, you could feel that heat. Like it's hot. Like it's going to. Yeah, I got two tattoos on my arm from that. Yeah, from a CO two rack. I I legit have a like a nice you know seven eighths style pipe on one, and then like a nice uh, nice discharge header on the other. Love so it. You were, you were bitching that you wanted a tattoo. You got two already. Yeah, <laughs> get, not, not the ones I want. The you know some burn skin. You 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 smell that. You're like, ooh, that's yeah. gonna hurt later. That's gonna be bad. <laughs> no, I, I I have girly hands now. I, I go to grab a pot in the wrong way that I used to, and and I'm like, oh motherfucker, why is it? Oh, okay, office girl now. <laughs> so, let's talk over the oil system for a little bit, because like I I have a you know a couple questions about this, because I know like we have a ton of problems when we like these racks shut down with yeah. with the oil. Uh, mitigation so how are you guys doing your guys's oil system is it are you guys using omb's or omc's or are you guys using the dan foss controller to fill oil pots it's both how's that we're using the oil on the compressors those are our our regulators for the crankcases so let me tell you i so we come out of the the discharge we go through our oil separator then out of our oil separator right let's see some pictures where are the pictures I, I don't have a picture of the oil. Ah. So we go through the oil separator. We come out of the oil separator, go through a uh, solenoid valve. The solenoid valve, we set it up on a timer, on a timing relay. And that's what's then um, feeding into an oil reservoir. The oil reservoir then has its pressure relief goes back to your flash tank. 
And then out of your oil separator, or excuse me, out of your oil reservoir, you're feeding your two oil regulators on your compressors. And then the oil regulators are just, they're the OMC style um, regulators on the side of the compressors. So, so, so you I guys had problems with uh, the with the uh, actual oil drain solenoid, like just being on a timer and not having a, a level light, or is that worked out better just using the timer because we've, we've had a lot of problems with the oil level lights. You know, when we're running transcritical, the oil's you know, so violent in there, it starts faking out the light and the light doesn't see the oil and it gets picked back up at the separator and take it back out to the gas cooler and it's all through the system. Are you talking a light on like your oil reservoir, like a, like a low oil warning it, type light? Uh, I shouldn't say a light. I should say like a, it's an optical eye. So yeah, it's an I've optical eye. I've got that. Oh, you do? Yeah, so. I've got that. So the optical eye sees the sees the oil level and then it pulses the solenoid on to no, drain it. No, so I'm not using the optical eye to pulse the the valve. I'm running the valve just on, strictly on a timer. And so when we set up, when we built our that first system, I, I spent a lot of time dialing in my on and off cycle on that that solenoid valve to get it set so that I held my oil reservoir at a pretty stable level. Um, as opposed to having like a, uh, um, uh, something like that. Yeah. Now does that got an actual sensor? Yeah, no, so basically this sticks right in. So this can be used for liquid level or oil level. Okay. And basically, yeah, no. Okay. never mind. Yeah. This one, uh, the ones that I'm, I'm talking about, it's, uh, it's just a, uh, well, I think Prywan makes it. It's a Delta. It's not a Delta. I, piece, I know which one you're talking about. Yep. Yep, I think it's a SE one E one or something like that. Um, but it's just a it's just an optic eye that's looking at a level, and once that and it's not immersed in the um, in the oil in the oil at all. Yeah, there's a different different insert fitting that goes into that. So, so you gotta, Kevin, you got to remember with his shit, he's got a constant load all the time. So like you know, I'm not for, varying a lot. Yeah, yeah, so like you know, his oil consumption should be pretty heady, steady while he's in production, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. I don't have huge variations in load. And his, and, well, yeah. as long as, and he only has two evaporators. So if the superheat's straight, he, you know, he should be fine as far as you right. know return on the on the suction side, right? Yeah, and I'm close coupled too, Kevin. Remember that I'm everything's tight and compact. I don't have these long runs and ambient issues that I got to deal with and slopes and all that jazz, right? I mean, I like the I like the pulsing better on the on the oil reservoir anyway. Like I I, I like the I would rather drain it more on uh, the oil separator more than, than the optical eye, because mm -hmm. when you run a TC, I mean, your, your, your oil flow rates increase dramatically on the compressors. They start pumping a lot more oil, even though yeah. it's a close coupled system, but like, you're still, you're still able to make that up a lot faster than we are. But I, I mean, the, the timer is, is, a, is an awesome idea. Yeah. I it mean, works we're, really we're well. it that, works like, couple times an hour or a couple times in uh every like 10 oh, no. minutes no 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 it's much more than that four seconds uh four seconds on 30 seconds off is about where i'm at on my circuit so, so constantly every every 30 constant, seconds it's constant every 30 seconds it's doing a four second open cycle you know what i like that because it's draining every bit of oil out of there that you could which is which is what we do on the mt systems like that started doing you know, to kind of transcritical because I mean, we we had so many problems with the optical eyes catching all the oil. 
Ah, uh, gotcha, gotcha. I haven't done. I built one um, system, uh, the transcritical booster that used the optic eye for it, but that was one of my custom projects. So we built it, and I don't. Uh, well, shoot, um, Brett, you may know him. The guys at RSI in California. Yep, uh, yep. They they fired it up, and and they work with it, but uh, I I haven't really gotten any reports about how how well that operates for them. They, it was specified by them, but it had the optic eye to control the solenoid valve on that one. Gotcha. There, there's a new place that's opening up out in Arizona that I'm really, really, well, we'll talk about it when we get off air, but like it's, it's huge freaking facility. And I just, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to get out there. Oh, nice. How's your system going, by the way? I saw you got your uh, trainer in. Not yet. Not yet. It's, 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 it's oh. on order. It's on oh, order. I saw the picture. I thought that was it. Nope. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Unfortunately it takes, a while to build because they're they're basically they're they're redoing the piping on it um i should expect it third the end of third quarter just oh, so nice. i have it just in time nice. for for classes for the fourth quarter so i'm kind of stoked oh that's kevin i'm i'm you know i'm glad you brought it up because kevin is just <laughs> irritated the fact that i won't stop talking about it because i'm super <laughs> excited about it <laughs> I saw, I can see Kevin rubbing his face as soon as I mentioned it. <laughs> I know. Well, usually he looks like the Unabomber. He look, you know, he, he's in the back there. Yeah. <laughs> the Unabomber. <laughs> Fun times. Oh my God. So anything else you want to, whether you want to talk about Kev, was there any other questions you had about, about his chiller? I, I want more pictures though. I want to see more pictures. Photos. I just don't have. Does the inside? Does that PowerPoint have anything else like inside? It does. It does. Check it out. Yeah. So let me uh, let me share my screen. Yeah. Let me show the rest of this. Let's see if I can get get this working here again. How's that? Sorry. Did that come up for you guys? Yeah. Yep. Yep. We're looking at it. So this is, you know, and what this, this PowerPoint just takes us through this. So we don't have the sheet metal on it here and I might be able to zoom in. So here I'm working with the, the guys from the facility. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is, is uh, this is a gentleman. He's uh, uh, with a company, uh, Arctic refrigeration up in Anchorage. Okay. And they're the service provider. They're the guys taking care of the system. And then the gentleman here uh, to the right, uh, that's the owner of Denali Brewing. Uh -huh. uh, it's on. And so we're, we go through a week-long training at our facility, just going over the components, the flow of the system. And then we're down here, and, and, and they're just identifying each of these components. So here's the oil separator. Uh -huh. This, uh, let's see if I can get that. Kind of right in front of him, you can see where my cursor is, is the blue coil. Uh -huh. uh, solenoid valve so we come through we go through a little filter uh that's just a, a real fine mesh filter screen then we go through the solenoid valve then we go into the oil reservoir and my my target that i'm trying to, i want to keep that oil reservoir at kind of you know mid-level sight glass it floats as the system operates but about three quarters of the way down the oil reservoir we do have an optic sensor that'll throw an oil warning light on and it's just, it's not a hard alarm. It's just a soft. It says, hey, your oil's getting a little low inside this reservoir. Um, 
Not sure if I can show. And I'm sure you you're sure you have low superheat alarms everywhere on this place, so you don't damage those compressors. Because I'm sure those oh, yeah. 50 horsepowers aren't fucking cheap. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This is uh, this was while we were up then. So that was in our manufacturing facility. This is up on the job site in Talkeetna. So we're just going through getting everything fired up and commissioned, uh, everything getting charged up. This is oh, there's a good view. Here's a poke. So this guy that's with me here, this is uh, John Vandergeesen. Uh, he works for me uh, on the technical team and is one of my technicians. And this, you know, kind of my target here with this is what I, I take the time and set the time aside to be able to kind of make sure he's learning from me and I'm able to pass my information down to him, uh, you know, so that he's able to go ahead and do this troubleshooting and commissioning and firing up of the systems. Um, you know, and it's not hanging on to all that info. Um, but we're charging the system up here. We've got the liquid dip tubes. Um, we're just, I'm just running a straight charging hose. Uh, you know, it's not, not, not a high pressure hose or anything like that uh, from a transcritical gauge. This valve right here in front of him. Heat reclaim. Yep. This is our heat reclaim valve right here. Uh -huh. uh, this is the backside of the oil reservoir. This is the bleed line coming off this goes straight back to the flash tank and um, you said on this one you're maintaining 550 for the flash and then your suction pressure is what what they're doing uh suction pressure will run around 350 psi right in there 22 uh -huh. degrees go off of uh, uh if we're looking at a co2 chart 22 degrees is my target suction temperature on that circuit so is it usually about like a 10 degree delta is you you guys are running or is it a little bit less than that be close, you know, as, as things dial in, you can tighten it up a little bit, but you know, what I find you end up doing is, you know, not, you might, uh, uh, cause if I'm trying to maintain, like in these guys' case, I'm running 28 degrees, but I'm running a 22. So I'm running a six degree split on this system gotcha. or the approach. Oh, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So then do you get this thing out? pre-charged or is it like close or do you guys blow it down because no, i know we, you said yeah you run in the facility before it comes out right correct correct so what we do with every system that goes out we fire it up and run it at with load fully loaded conditions inside the facility and then we we drain down the co2 out of the system ship it, it arrives to the job site with a 100 psi nitrogen charge on the on the system and uh that comes out and then and then we just uh uh pop everything back right back in Re yeah, recharge with new co2 kev from my understanding it you can't i think there's some kind of dot regulation where you can't actually uh take a piece of equipment that has transcript uh, that has co2 in it and and transport it because like we were we were just toying with this idea the other day just to ship some equipment and they can't do it even if it's a higher really? bar yeah even if it's higher pressure rated standstill yeah. pressure. Yeah, that would make sense. This was their installation. This is kind of, you know, the end of the job site, cleaning everything up and making sure it's in ship shape. So your your TD on your on your air cooled uh condenser or gas, I'm sorry, gas cooler is what yeah. are you guys trying to maintain on that? Um if I can, you know, if I can so well it depends on if I'm subcritical or transcritical, right? Um, what I'm really controlling everything to is my gas cooler outlet temperature, which I'm looking for around 70 degrees, somewhere in that range. Hmm. 
Oh, wait, yeah, because I guess you're able to achieve that because, uh, okay, all right. High pressure valve, right? And the yeah. heat recovery. So this this is our, this gives a, well, this is a snapshot I took of one when it was in operation up there. So we were running, uh, discharge temperature was still pretty low at 152. And that's because these guys aren't running the heat recovery system in that picture. Uh -huh. So it's, everything's running at lower pressure at that point for them but it just kind of gives you a snapshot of what the system was doing in operation. You can see the flash tank was up to 580 flash gas valves increasing. And I would, if like, if I was watching this live, I would be expecting that flash gas valve to be opening up, you know, increasing. So I don't see the three-way valve on that, on that little diagram. We didn't, we didn't put the three-way valve or the heat exchanger there in that, okay. Okay. on that area. So I guess it would be over here. No, it's fine. I just, do you have a, do you have a P and ID diagram? To, to see uh, the actual piping or no? I don't have one available readily right now. Okay, that's fine. To bog us down. And this is just the crew when we did the startup on that particular system. Well, next time I'm out in California, I'm going to, how far is that from like LA? Where this facility is? Yeah. Um, About three hours north because you're just past Bakersfield is where it's at. Damn. A little too far, a little too far of a job. Central Valley. Do you have any down in LA? No, nothing in LA, but shoot, go up further up north and, and you got, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I guess you'd have to get to Fresno or Stockton. There's a big uh, uh, CO2, Yosemite Foods is a big project up in up in there. Uh, Coalinga State Prison, that's where that uh, uh, booster system rack is at, but now you're getting over over towards the coast and stuff. So, and you guys manufacture these in, in North Carolina, right? Yeah. Moxville, North Carolina is where the manufacturing facility is. So we're just South of, uh, um, just South of Raleigh and North of Charlotte, kind of right in between Raleigh and Charlotte. I would go there when I worked for Ingersoll Rand. They have, they have their facility out there. It's in Moxville. Oh, it is no shit. Okay. Well, it's the same town, same, same little town. Yeah. There's an Ingersoll Ram facility right there. So if you ever make your way out to here, you know to give me a holler. And yeah, for sure. Drop in. Stop at a distillery somewhere. We got, we got about 30 minutes south of us. We got a few big breweries just right around town. Well, I guess I know where I'm going this summer for training purposes. I'm going to investigate this new uh, CO2 uh, trainer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Good job here for me. <laughs> What's that, Ken? They'd rather go to the one in Alaska. Yeah. Alaska sounds much nicer. I don't. I don't like snow. I don't I'm do snow going, anymore. Well, in the summer, I don't do just snow. Got, just got mosquitoes <laughs> and <of> pterodactyls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, man, Damon, thanks for coming on. I mean, yeah. I didn't know if yeah. there's anything else that you wanted to talk about. Um, but. No, guys. I mean, yeah. If, if uh, you know, if anybody ever uh, has questions on CO2 chillers or how to get a hold of us, uh, you know, reach out. Uh, Prochiller.com is our website. We've got a lot of web, uh, good resources there. Um, we've got uh, uh, Pro Green is our um, our homepage for the um, CO2 systems. Um, so you can get a lot of technical specs, things like that. Get in touch with our sales team if anyone's looking for quotes, that type of stuff. But uh, don't ever hesitate to reach out and uh, we'd love to hear from people.
Good deal. And I'm going to plug this, Kevin. I don't care if you're going to get mad at me or whatever. But hey, the North America Sustainable Refrigerant Council is going to be going on in April, April 4th. Everybody show up because it's free CO2 training. Everyone's yeah. going to be there from Kaiser Warren to Gutner, Corell, uh, Hill Phoenix, uh, Dan Foss. Uh, like they've got all the major manufacturers doing a whole bunch of training for two and a half days. So I highly recommend you guys going out there. It's in Irwindale, California. Yeah, that'll be great. So, all right, guys. Well, man, right thanks for listening. Have a great night. Thanks a lot. See you guys.